Good morning. It's great to see you. Um, this morning, just apologies first of all in that because of we've had snow days and although you wouldn't believe it today, snow days and all age services, I've got to take this talk to the other congregation afterwards. So I will be nipping off towards the end. So do pray for the other congregation once you've heard it. Um, you probably feel the need for that. Um, and Sarah will lead us into communion, but apologies for that. Anyway, good morning. It's great to be here. And uh, today's topic is, I get it, uh, but I don't believe it. Okay, I'm, what is it about? Can I trust this? And uh, it's about trying to look for faith. Because as we look for spirituality, as we look for God, faith is the door into that. It's the doorway we go through into connecting with God. But you might be here thinking, well, I'm an intellectual person, so that's a, that's a bit of a barrier because it seems to contradict faith. You know, the rational part of us versus the kind of the faith uh, part of our lives. And uh, in our search for authentic truth in life is probably one of the most life-challenging quests that we have because we see so much inauthenticity around. So for some people today, you'll have different backgrounds. It may be that you um, have got a faith upbringing, um, you had Christian parents, and uh, as you've grown older, you've maybe questioned those beliefs, or you've seen hypocrisy, um, or you've, you've you started to question things uh, in other ways. Um, and you might have sidelined your faith, you might have rejected it, you might have lost interest in it. But one way or another, you've outgrown the faith that you had, and therefore what you're looking for is, is a renewed faith um, that has got some adult integrity to it. Some people here today maybe have, have faith, but it's quite weak, it's quite damaged. Um, it feels perhaps like you're, you're walking with a sprained ankle or you, there's an incredible meal sat before you, but you've got toothache. You can't really enjoy it uh, in the way it was meant to be. We've, we don't have confidence in our faith. And in fact, it brings more pain to our lives than actual comfort. Or is it just that it's a set of concepts uh, in our lives? It's not life-changing. It's like that vaccination. We've had enough of it to stop us really having a vibrant faith uh, in our lives. So our faith is there, but it needs invigorating. And then there might be others here today who have got a completely secular upbringing. There's no kind of God's concept uh, in your background at all. And so faith might seem quite strange. It might seem quite embarrassing. It might seem quite primitive um, in how we approach life, just some sort of cultural custom that is, uh, is quite foreign to us. And yet, in our secular worldview, we have this sense that there's more to life, that it's unfulfilling uh, in itself. So different people have had different experiences of faith uh, as we've grown up. But also, there are people who have very different stances towards faith in believing uh, in God. So, for example, there's the cynic, um, and uh, we meet many people uh, who are cynical. And it may be that they, they are they're often quite aggressive towards faith or aggressive towards people um, of faith. It's not that they just don't believe, but they somehow there's an emotion tied to it. It's not a neutral, I don't believe, but they really kind of very cynical uh, towards things. Very often, my experience is that people have been hurt at some point in the past. They've been hurt by a Christian, by a religious family member, by an institution, by the church, um, or seen hypocrisy, or, or at least apparent hypocrisy, somewhere along in their experience. And it is always worth examining what it is that has caused that. Is there a pain, is there a hurt in our lives or in someone else's life? Uh, a negative experience that they need to start to talk about and verbalize uh, in some way. 
because cynicism kills faith and it wrecks so much of what we see in life. There's also the skeptic, and uh, these folks are, are not so much emotionally charged uh, in their antagonism. You know, they've got genuine questions, but perhaps they've never really explored it or found answers that are effective uh, in their lives. And uh, I think the approach with the skeptic is to ask what those questions are because very often people have not had adequate answers to the questions they've got. So what are the questions that we might have? And uh, if that's you today, it's just beginning to explore those. Because we can be closed in our skepticism and just say, well, I'm just not interested, I don't want to know about it. Or we can be open in our skepticism, say I've got genuine questions and I'm looking for some genuine answers. There's also the, the apathetic, the I don't really care. You know, I don't really see the importance of it. You know, you might as well be asking me, you know, if there were birds on the moon and would they have gray feathers or black feathers? I don't care. It's not important. It doesn't matter uh, to me at all. And I think the challenge with, with um, that stage of our lives is to consider, try to consider the big questions, which is a challenge. Um, because it, often it takes the crisis in our lives to wake us up to the big questions of life. There's a guy that I know, um, I, haven't, I hadn't seen him for 15 years a guy called Dean, and him and his wife Rebecca came on the Alpha course about 15 years ago. And Dean came through totally unscathed, asked all these questions, but this was not for him. You know, he was just going to remain uh, outside of it. Great for Rebecca, but, but not for me. I met him just a few weeks ago, and a remarkable story. Here's a guy who had gone away from that course, and a few months later, in his work, in his job, um, he had a horrible accident. It involved a circular saw and his face and neck. It missed his main artery by a millimeter, and he, he now has a 40-stitch scar across his face and neck. But he also has an incredible smile, because he said at that point, I started to think back to all the things we talked about. And he started to think about life and death and faith. And he's now a, a leader on a board of a, of a large church in the Midlands, and uh, absolutely committed to following Jesus Christ. And I have to say, there are less painful ways to ask the big questions in life. So um, take that as an encouragement. Um, but there are the fearful. And we see this in Peter. Peter was open, but he was fearful. Um, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus said to Simon Peter, don't be afraid. You know, we're open, but we're fearful to trust God, you know, with our lives. We fear perhaps of exposing ourselves as uh, that thing said that if we as we face God we start to face uh, ourselves and um, perhaps the vulnerability of that um, perhaps what other people might think about that makes us fearful um, in trusting God and so one question would be for for such a person is, is what are you fearful of and begin to explore that a little bit but as we look at that sketch you know is your view of God like the man in the corrugated iron shed who thinks that God is just out to get you. You know, he's a sniper just trying to wreck your life somehow, and he's going to take you down. And it's only at the end, when he comes out of the shed, that he realizes that actually he's not his enemy, he's his friend. But even when you start to think about the bullet holes, you know, you think, well, what are the bullet holes? Well, he was trying to kill me. But actually, he was trying to open up his view to see it beyond himself and to see what was actually out there. And we did that because it's like a parable. And you probably sat there and thought, what was that about? Go away and talk about it. Go and think about it because there are some truths in it, I think, that help us think outside the box, which is how Jesus often taught uh, in our lives. And then there's the open inquirer. 
you know, you're genuinely looking for answers to your questions. You're on a journey of searching and for meaning. You're open to read. You're open to uh, listen and to discuss and to take on board what you learn. And the question uh, for the inquiry is what's stopping us? What's stopping us from stepping into trusting Jesus and ask him for his forgiveness and for his leadership in our lives? So there there are five different attitudes and uh, each one of us will probably put ourselves somewhere on that journey uh, or will have experienced that in our own lives. But when it comes to belief in God, the intellectual question of is there a God, then there are three answers. There's yes, I believe there is a God. There's no, I don't believe there is a God. Or there is, I simply don't know whether there is or whether there isn't. The, the no's in the middle there are the atheists. Um, but it's worth saying that the atheist, I would argue, is actually a position of faith. Because nobody can prove conclusively that God doesn't exist any more than we can prove conclusively God does exist. So just consider this diagram for a minute. If, if A represents all the truth everywhere, so everything ever that is true in the universe and all the rest of it. B represents the sum of all the truth that the humans know. I'm not saying this is to scale, by the way. That's, uh, okay, but every human being throughout history, what our sum of our knowledge of truth is, okay, we would represent with that, that second circle. And then there's a third circle, circle C, which represents the knowledge um, of the person answering no to the question, is there a God? Because it denies, it ignores uh, a whole lot of other knowledge. Now what they can legitimately say, I think, is that in my experience, I have no reason to recognize the existence of God. But it does, um, it does ignore a huge amount of personal testimony um, throughout history. It ignores a whole lot of uh, well thought through uh, information beyond ourselves, beyond even humanity. And so to say that there is no God is a logical conclusion um, doesn't really ring. It's as much a faith position as anything else. And so in that sense, it kind of levels the play, playing field a little bit, um, whether we believe in God, whether or not. It's different aspects of faith, but yet it's a faith stance. Now there are Many strong reasons why an atheist will believe there is no God um, and may be committed to that. It may be that you know, every religious person they've ever met is, seems like a complete nut to them. Um, they, there's a naivety to them. They're often ill-mannered, perhaps. So why, why follow that? It may be that they see religion as a primitive feature of civilization. And actually, I, I want to be on the, the kind of scientific leading edge of human development. It may be that they've chosen that scientific worldview. Uh, which prohibits them from believing anything that can't be verified by the five senses. You know, if I can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, uh, whatever, um, or mathematically prove it, then I have to ignore it. Uh, there's no option for that. And they may seem like plausible kind of arguments. Um, but one question often to ask of someone who takes that stance is what kind of God did he not believe in? Because often when they describe the gods that they don't believe in, we might actually find ourselves agreeing with them, saying, well, that's, that's not the God even I believe in. Um, and what we often reject is often false um, of what we might see uh, in, the, in the Bible. But there, if there is no God, then there are still some big questions that remain unanswered. You know, if there really is no God, then we have to ask the question, why does something exist and not nothing? You know, if you go with the Big Bang, why did the Big Bang bang when it did and how it did? 
Now, why do conscious, why do conscious, intelligent life develop in a way that asks these very questions? You know, does life have a meaning? Um, and if not, why are people in the world so desperate for meaning? You know, does human history lead anywhere, or is it all just a complete waste of time? Okay, is death the end? Are good and evil, right and wrong, ultimate realities, or just social constructs um, that, that come up because humans have that opinion? Um, and if your answer to that is who needs a reason, it's just all chance and all the rest of it, then I would argue that's a lazy answer because I think these are real questions that real people um, have uh, across our world. But it does leave us with a crisis of meaning. If there is no God, and yet we find hardwired into humanity a deep desire to understand meaning uh, in life. You know, if there is no God, then it doesn't solve anymore the problems of evil and suffering. They just become random things. Um, but there's no explanation, there's no understanding of it. It has no redemption, there's no afterlife, there's no meaning to it whatsoever. Um, if there's no God, there are no standards to critique anything by. You know, why is there good and bad? Why is there right and wrong? Why is there justice and injustice? Okay? They're just things we made up if there is no God and a moral God at that. And if there is no God, life doesn't make sense. We don't make sense. C.S. Lewis um, uh, asks us in his book, Mere Christianity, to imagine a world where eyes have never developed. Okay? There are no eyes. He says, if the whole universe has no meaning... We should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. So if there's no eyes, dark would be without meaning. Similarly, he argues, the fact that eyes exist suggests that light must exist. And the fact that we, are, we have spiritual longings the fact that we are, even have a meaningful category of thought and speech called spirituality suggests that there is some corresponding reality out there which we have the capacity to sense. And he says that capacity would be called faith and that reality, God. And so for many, atheism is too, is too extreme a step um, of faith. Um, to that, and therefore, a lot of people go for the kind of middle ground agnostic, which is um, I just don't know. And you can be a closed agnostic, which is it's impossible to know, so none of us ever will. Or you can be open to at least ask the questions. And the closed agnostic would say, it can if it can't be worked out in my mind, then then that all that is all there is. Okay, we we take nothing outside revelation can can influence that only what I can work out in my mind. But if, if our mind is no, if we can understand everything about God, then the God we know can never be any bigger than our minds. And what kind of God is that? And also they argue that it can only be knowable through your five senses. You know, there's, there's no aspect of something beyond um, uh, in understanding that. So they say it's a, it's a hypothesis, a theory of knowledge, which they can never prove. And it ignores a long history of profound Christian writers and thinkers. And it ignores the testimony of millions of people uh, across our planet. And then there is the, the open agnostic who may never have any, had any spiritual experiences that gives them reason to believe in a God. Um, or certainly none that they've recognized. But they're open. And uh, so yeah, you can imagine the early explorers, you know, who are not sure whether the earth is flat or spherical, Right? 
you know, and I, I know they probably thought it was spherical from all the geometries from the Greeks and all the rest of it, but they're not sure until you've got in a boat and you've gone around the planet and come back to the same place. You're not entirely sure what's going to go on. So there's an element of risk involved. There's an element of adventure uh, and quest uh, involved in that. And they're filled with uncertainty. They made, made loads of errors along the way, which are necessary prices of discovering something uh, for sure. And uh, so you can imagine a conversation going with, with someone who's, who's open and but asking. So I might ask something like this. So, you know, you're an agnostic, John. Um, so you, you're open to the possibility of God existing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, John, if, if God exists, would it make sense for you to pray? You know, if there is a God, do you think it makes sense that we could pray? Uh, yeah, pray. I'm not sure where I'd begin, but I suppose that, that makes sense. Okay, so if there is a God and he's intelligent enough to create the universe and he's personal enough to create conscious life, it might make sense to say, God, are you out there? Kind of like picking up the phone, says John, and asking, is anyone there? Yeah, I suppose so, exactly. Um, but you might take it a step further from that and say, if you are there, please help me to know you. So John says, yeah, yeah, I could see, uh, we don't have a problem with that. I could see that makes sense. I might feel a bit awkward. I might feel a bit weird, like talking to yourself. But um, there, wouldn't be, there wouldn't be any, any harm in it, I suppose, as, as long as that's it, you know, nothing beyond that. Yeah, well, okay, my guess is that uh, you'd only take it any further if you wanted to, and that would probably only be if you saw some sort of answer to your prayer. Sounds like an experiment, says John. Well, yeah, faith is like that. Faith is a bit of an experiment, John. Um, and uh, if we're open to it, and we're, it's a good place to experiment and be open to see how God might interact with our lives. But John says, but doesn't it require faith to gain more faith? And you say, well, that's a great question. You know, but do you have enough faith to pursue more faith? And uh, John thinks, yeah, sounds like I do. A little bit of faith takes us towards more faith. It's not an all or nothing thing. It's about stepping forward bit by bit. And if that is you today, if you feel that maybe you're, you're ready to move into experimenting with God and begin to ask him, then you do that. My first prayer that I ever prayed was, if you're up there, God, and I don't really know if you are, if you're up there, God, will you get involved in my life? Will you start to lead my life and show me how to live? And I would say that was a prayer that opened up a whole lot of things that started my journey with God. Because if you've got enough faith to wonder, if you've got enough faith to ask, if you've got even more faith to seek, that is a very, very good start. Like the early explorers setting off in their ships thinking, I wonder what I'm going to see what there is. An openness to that. So we've looked at some of the stances uh, of, uh, okay, there's, there's, the, there's the picture. Um, we looked at some of the stances, but we also have different stages in faith. And Peter, I think, is a great example of someone who goes through all the ups and downs of faith. Um, and it starts with his anxiety. First of all, we see his fearfulness. He's afraid. Um, can he trust this Jesus with his life, with his faults, thinking, I'm just going to let you down, Jesus. You don't need me. Okay? He's fearful. And yet Jesus comes and says, don't be afraid. I've got plans for you. I've got purposes for you. Follow me and trust me. So we move from there, and Peter moves into this place of very sim simple faith. Um, it just says he left his boats and he followed. 
Okay, suddenly everything is very black and white. Everything is just right and wrong. Uh, everything is, is very clear, good and bad. Faith seems easy. And uh, we go through that stage of faith in our lives. But then life gets a little bit more complex. And we go into this next stage. And if you read about Peter's life in John chapter 6, there's a section where Jesus says to everyone, I'm the bread of life. I'm the manna from heaven. And they're all scratching their heads trying to get around this. Verse 60 says, on hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 61, Jesus asks, does this offend you? And says, this is spiritually discerned. Some of you do not believe. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So Jesus says to the 12, do you want to leave too? And then Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Following Jesus, trusting Jesus, faith in Jesus has just got a little bit more complex. And they're trying to work it out. It is more challenging. It's moved from tell me what I need to know to show me how I need to grow. And so faith needs to develop. It's not just about knowing the right and wrong. It's about how do I live this out in the complexities of my everyday life. And for many, that can also lead to a stage of perplexity. And again, we see this with Peter. If you read in John chapter 18, verses 10 to 27, and, and just after the resurrection, but, you know, Jesus is arrested and about to be crucified. What does Peter do? He cuts off the soldier's ear with his sword. Peter's losing it a little bit here, to be honest, in his panic. Secondly, he goes on and he denies Jesus three times. Um, he seems to be losing his way. He seems to become disillusioned with, with his faith. And eventually he heads back to just being a fisherman, which is what he was before. And for many, the complexities of faith lead us to a life of a stage of perplexity. You know, we're looking for authentic faith and we become disillusioned with the inauthentic. You know, suddenly everything is questionable. You know, and we ask question of everything. We distrust the authorities. We, they're dishonest. They are controlling. They impose easy answers on complex issues. I don't trust them. And they, we go to one of two ways. We either go off on our own in solitude or we, take, we, we find a little group of people a little bit like ourselves, similarly disillusioned, and we become a little thing over there. Okay, we get stuck in that stage of perplexity. But what we see with Peter is he grows through this to a stage of humility. And in John 21, verses 7 to 22, we see Jesus coming to reinstate Peter. After his death and resurrection, you know, he sends them fishing again. They haven't caught anything all night. So in humility, Peter goes out again and starts to fish. And they have this massive catch. Jesus eats, eats with them. And then Peter starts, out of that fellowship and friendship, starts to re-challenge him. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these. Do you love me more than these? Three times. And reinstates him. And Peter's response is one of humility, despite all the other things. And I think these stages from simplicity to complexity to perplexity um, and through all of those actually ends with humility as a kind of overlaps them all. It takes the wise stuff from them all and it starts to hold them together. It's suddenly it's not just about me, it's about the bigger picture. 
It's about my relationship to the whole. It's about my relationship with God and graciously working with people at all of those different stages of their faith journey um, as well. And Jesus doesn't just say, just believe, I said so. You know, trust me because I said so. He always says, believe because. Okay, believe because. Believe because of the quality of my teachings. Read them. Do they make sense? Believe because you see the miracles that I do. He says that in John. Believe because you see my disciples' love for one another. That this works, this community thing. Believe because you see my followers displaying a mysterious unity amongst them. Believe because my words prove to be true in experience. Try it out. Try these words in your life. Believe because you can see my profile foretold through the ancient prophets. The way I taught, the way I lived, the way I died, the things that happened, all foretold hundreds of years before. Believe because God somehow makes it clear to you. Okay, believe because credible people saw my resurrection and are reporting on it. Read those accounts. Believe because the fruit of my life was good. Jesus never says believe blindly. Okay, the faith that Jesus calls for us has intellectual honesty to it. It is not blind, it's not forced, it's not phony. He says, look at my life, look at these things, and then you decide. And, uh, you know, as was referred to earlier, the church at times can do an incredibly poor PR job on the kingdom of God. And if that's been your experience, now there are times when it does it well, but ultimately you've got to look at the life of Jesus. You know, pick up the Gospels and start to look at Jesus himself because he is not a phony. He is the real thing. And... Um, as you start to read about Jesus, you find he is scandalously inclusive. You know, Sarah earlier on, you know, the, the religious people of his day were trying to say, exclude the children. You now Jesus said, come to me. Let the children come to me. You know, it was the social outcasts, the social do-gooders were the only people that had any kudos. But Jesus spends time with the sinners and the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the downtrodden. Okay, he is socially inclusive. He just says, I want everyone. This party is open to everyone. It's a come on in community. The disciples want to exclude the non-Jews. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You know, I've never been like that. He, in fact, he says, I've never seen faith in all Israel. And he picks this non-Jewish guy, this centurion, a Roman soldier. He says, he's, he's got more faith than any of you. Okay, he includes. And it's that that rings true as a sign of this is a legitimate thing. He's also uh, relationally electric. You're watching with Peter. He's, he encourages Peter. He challenges Peter. He's, he encourages him again. Um, he confronts him. And he just brings him on so patiently and brings uh, that full potential out of his life. And I, you have that sense of, I want to sign on to a team like that. I want to sign on with someone who is like that. It might be scary, but that's what I want to be part of. And then the way he so naturally interacts with people, you know, the Samaritan woman at the well. Here's someone of, uh, of a despised culture. She's been divorced multiple times. And he just, if you read that little passage in John 4, incredibly sensitive issues. And he brings up these sensitive issues and leaves her saying, 
this is incredible. And she goes to a town and says, come back, everyone. I want you to meet this guy. Okay, the way he interacts with people is, is amazing. And uh, all the stories you read of him are so unexpected. They so challenge the status quo. They're so earthy. They're so unrehearsed that they have that powerful ring of credibility uh, about them. And he's also uh, graciously demanding. You know, there's plenty of religion in this world that is demanding. Do this, do that, get this right. If you fail, you lose. Um, observe this, eat that, don't eat this. There's, there's plenty of that around. Okay, there's also plenty of gracious religion around, which is you can do anything. You know, you can have an affair. It's okay, everyone does it. You can treat women badly, that's fine. You know, you can make lots of money and keep it for yourself. You know, not everyone's a Mother Teresa. Um, you know, you can complain excessively, you can listen little, you can drink too much. There's plenty of stuff in our world that says you can do what you like. But what Jesus does and what people need is something that does both, is between the two. It doesn't leave you guilty and defeated, but it also doesn't leave you apathetic or self-righteous. What it does is it demands us to a better life, but the call to it comes with such compassion and such grace that we want to be part of it. And that's what I find in Jesus. It's a livable path. It's a yoke I can bear. In fact, it's a yoke that seems to be easier than anything else that I've ever come across. It has that ring of truth. And when you look at his teaching style, you know, with the parables, it gets people thinking. It's, it's not harsh. It's gentle. It's magnetic. It's not pushy. It's inviting, not driving. And it has the opportunity to respond. It says, you can take it or leave it. It's your choice. It's my choice. Um, but at least have a proper look and always go back to Jesus and see how he works with people. There's a guy, and I'll finish with this, a guy called Ron, um, who came on the Alpha course a long time ago now. And I remember having this conversation with him. He just said, Andy, basically asked this question. Oh, I get it, Andy, but I, I can't believe it. So he said, how can you believe this stuff 100%? I said, well, what, what percentage do you believe? And he said, oh, probably about 70% of it adds up. So I said, okay. That's good. So I said, so you're going to put your faith in the 30% you're not sure about and walk away from it, or you're going to put yourself, your faith in the 70% you're pretty sure about? And he said, well, I've never thought about it like that. And over the coming days, that changed his thinking. And uh, he's had enough faith to start that journey and to pursue more faith and experience the truth in his own life and he's got loads of stories to tell today of what that actually looks like. Let's pray. I just want to use a very simple prayer that I came across in a Gideon's Bible when I was about 19, 20 years old that helped me. And it was just headed in search of faith. Here's the prayer. You might want to make it your own this morning. Wherever you're at on the journey. Dear God, I find it difficult to know what to believe. Help me to trust you and what you say in the Bible, even though I don't understand everything. Amen. And Father, I pray that you would help us to take just some new steps of faith in our life so that we can find more. In Jesus' name, amen.